Hello, hello, hello. It's a late podcast again. Thankfully, Duke, oh, my, my earpiece has just popped out there. That's better. It's been just one of those uh, months, just being very busy building stuff, building websites, which can take quite a bit of time to do and get right and things, and photography and websites going down, and it's my website going down, and... Uh, all sorts of issues that I had to sort out. So, of course, everything started getting bumped back. And, unfortunately, doing a podcast is not exactly like doing a tweet. You can't just pump them out like that. Uh, they're a bit labour-intensive, even now, even with one or two of my you know, gadgets and things to help me. So, it just got pushed back. Sorry about that, but I will make sure that the next month's, the final one of 2012 is on time and on target. Right, well, what have I been up to recently? Well, like I said about um, problems with my website, it was a classic sort of situation, just having to fiddle around with it, trying to improve one or two things, pressed a button and hey presto, my front page went and reset itself. Uh, So I had to put all of the information back in, all, all of the various different bits and pieces and link the photos in and all sorts. It took me about two or three hours to do it wasn't a total disaster and i've used it to improve one or two pieces but it just goes to show how frail our websites are if there was one service that i would recommend to you if you are a photographer online and you've got a a website and you aren't backing it up then i would recommend that you try a service called code guard um if you go to codeguard.com they have uh, some backup services for your website. Um, I use the free service at the moment, but I will probably end up using the paid service very soon because of the size of the the backup. Um, but they do do a free service, and it, what it does is it backs your website up every every day or whenever you change it. So if you've got a photography blog, for instance, um, every time you do that, it will detect that there's a change in your blog and it will back up everything but it backs up everything on your server so if you've got anything else on the server um it will back the whole lot up it's not just uh, a wordpress installation or joomla or whatever else uh you've got if you use wordpress they have a plugin uh which you can uh use and quite honestly but it, you don't have to have wordpress for it to work you'll just work on uh whatever server you, that you're on have a look at the service, see what you think about it, but it is definitely worth doing, just for peace of mind, to know that your website is backed up. I know there's an awful lot of people out there that do not back their uh, websites up, and you never know when something disastrous might happen. Mine was a small little incident uh, that occurred, but uh, if it was a huge one uh, that wrecked the site, I could get my website uh, back up online very, very quickly. So that's codeguard.com. They offer a free service and they offer a paid service as well. You have to dig it a little bit for the free service, but there is a uh, a link halfway down the site on the right-hand side, I believe it is. The paid service is only about £40 a year. I'm thinking about upgrading to it because it does offer a few other perks and things and you, you get more space serving uh, photographs uh, from your web server certainly does take up uh, a bit more space but it's nice to know that everything's been backed up on a regular basis okay well uh, earlier this week i ended up photographing um the local town it's suffered a severe flood 
due to all of the wet weather that we've we've had most of this year a lot of the the ground um in the uk is absolutely sodden completely it's like great big sponge and soaked as much water up as it as it can and it just can't soak anymore and it's caused floods extensive floods all over the the united kingdom and especially um in my part of north yorkshire where there's rivers and things uh and my local town has suffered again it was last severely flooded in about 2000 and 12 years later it's flooded again and I went down there with a camera just to capture some of the scenes. I shot some stuff on an iPhone and I shot some stuff on uh, on my regular digital camera, Nikon. And it was just quite spooky just to, to walk around and see scenes that you'd photographed before, 12 years earlier. Um, one scene I especially remember is this all of this water pouring through the front door of this house. Uh, there's an underground spring in this house it usually is dried up there's no water coming through it but it just so happened that with all of the water coming down with all of the rain and things it sort of reacted reactivated this spring and hey presser there's just all of this water pouring out of this um this front door quite a surreal um quite a severe surreal view really so I sort of had a look around and was was seeing all of these these pictures and, and thinking you know, I've I've seen this all before, and it was just a really, really spooky feeling, almost like deja vu in a way. Um, you don't often feel that when you because things move and change. Um, you can go and photograph at places and think, yeah, that's changed or that isn't there anymore. But in 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 this case, you know, it's, it was almost the same as it was uh, twelve years ago, with a few subtle differences. And I just wondered whether, you know, war photographers and things like that feel the same, you know, when they go and photograph, it doesn't matter whether it's someone who's shot in uh, in Africa or whether it's someone shot in another part of the world, it's still someone being shot. And I just wondered whether they sort of get that sense of deja vu, am I taking the same sort of images, but I'm just changing my geographical location. In my case, I wasn't changing the geographical location. Anyway, I managed to get some good shots. I must admit, I did enjoy taking images with Instagram. I know there's an awful lot of people who don't. I think it's a really good way of publishing work. Um, I didn't actually publish it live. I didn't take it and then put it on. I I put it on about half an hour, an hour later after I I got back home. Um, But I just think it's a really, really good way of capturing and uploading things. I know Time magazine... Uh, had some photographers going around during Hurricane Sandy on the east coast of America and they were using Instagram to upload uh, work and things that were going on uh, while Sandy was occurring. And it seemed as though, I thought it seemed it worked pretty well, but I know there was an awful lot of people out there that didn't particularly like the idea. They thought it degraded photojournalism. They thought that the photography wasn't as good. In fact, they thought the photography was absolutely lousy. I disagree. Um, but again, it sort of came back to um, equipment with a with a phone. Taking and uploading an image is quite easy. If you're talking about using equipment like a digital camera, you'd probably need a laptop, you'll need some Wi-Fi, 
Um, there's a whole lot of things that, in the case of New York, Manhattan and things, probably some of those elements might have been missing. You might have had the camera, you might have had the, the laptop, but you might not have had the Wi-Fi to be able to do anything to upload the photos. So it's just an interesting way of uh, looking at covering a story, I think, using Instagram. Whether it's just a fad, whether it's just something that will eventually lose its appeal, I don't know, possibly. But I think it's quite a good platform for publishing stories to images that you, you take, especially when it's a story that's moving, new story that's moving quite quick. Right, we start off the links section with a piece called A Fierce and Tender Eye, Gordon Parks on Poverty's Diet Hole. This is a Life magazine story. This is on the, the Life um, website. And it's a story that was published in 1961, but it's still a very powerful story and still a very relevant story even now. It's about a family in one of the uh, favelas in uh, Rio, I think it is. Yes, Rio de Janeiro. And really just covers how the relentless pressure of poverty, really. It was taken by Gordon Parks, who some people may know the name for the director who made Shaft in the early 70s but he was a very very talented life photographer I didn't know this until you know some time ago but he was a very very talented photographer and worked for for Life magazine he was the first Afro-American photographer to work for Life and quite honestly his work is absolutely fantastic I would certainly recommend having a look at Gordon Park's work um the the passion and all and also the anger that's sort of in there that this situation is occurring for this young family. I mean that the kids who are suffering in it are very very young. Um, the only thing I would say about the piece is it would have been nice if they could have gone back and found out what happened to the family. I suppose maybe you probably might not want to know what happened to the family, but there's no, no real after story about, you know, they they went back and found them, uh, found them, you know, they're, they're probably in the same place or maybe even possibly dead, which would be a bit of a sad end to the story. But um, Gordon Parks is a type of photographer I like. He's got a, a good blend of technical skill and compassion and I think that's something that's essential for a photojournalist technical skill and compassion there um, and here's another one where it's technical skill and passion Edward S. Curtis um, fantastic photographer who spent most of his life documenting the Native American tribes of the United States. Um, it ended, ended up costing him his marriage and also left him penniless. Um, but he left behind 40,000 photographs, uh, 10,000 audio recordings, and credited with making the world's first documentary film. And I think if probably if, if he'd have had the tools, he could have easily have put the photographs to the audio recordings and become the first multimedia um, photographer as well. An amazing story. This comes from uh, the BBC, and there's uh, it's just a, sh a short presentation, really, dealing with a photographer, and and it's also looking at a new book that's come out, which uh, is called uh, "Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher: The Epic Life and Immortal Photographs of Edward Curtis," and that's by the author Timothy Egan. 
who has followed the pioneering photographer's journey. Um, it is a remarkable story. Edward S. Curtis was a remarkable sort of uh, man. It was a massive, 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 massive project to undertake. I mean, uh, the sheer scale of it is w- will be large even now, even with the technical tools that we've we've got now. And for a photographer in the early 1900s to attempt this, um, I think he realised he had to do it. Once he'd started, I think he realised that the culture... Um, a lot of a lot of the Native American culture was going to disappear, and he needed to record it. And I think that's probably what fired him um, most of all. It took him three decades um, to complete, and you know he he documented the customs of more than eighty tribes. A remarkable achievement for a photographer now, but even more remarkable considering the technology of the time. Um, so that is Edward S. Curtis. I would certainly say that Curtis is one photographer that everybody should have a look at. You might not like his work, but you have to admire the man and his passion. This next link is Soviet war photography. I actually did a dissertation on this uh, in uni. I'm a big fan of Soviet war photographers. They had far more freedom in some respects than their uh, Western counterparts did. Um, there was no qualms about photographing Soviet dead, for instance, um, whereas to photograph Allied dead was seen as, well, there was no point in doing it because it would never get published anywhere. But even so, a lot of the photographers, Western photographers, did it, but the Soviet photographers did use it in the propaganda um, of, of fighting the Nazis, um, with, of course, the usual repercussions. It has been argued that uh, later in the war, when the Germans eventually uh, retreated back into Germany and the Soviet army arrived there, the reason for a lot of the atrocities and things caused by the Red Army were down to the sheer ferociousness of the uh, the Soviet propaganda saying about the atrocities that the Germans had done on Soviet territory. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but uh, it sounds feasible enough because uh, it it was certainly a, a war of annihilation. And uh, Soviet war photography has a very dark, gritty intensity to it. It certainly has a different look to uh, its Western counterpart. the The images are fantastic, and uh, some of the some of the names that are there there. Um, are familiar to some of us who have uh, studied it. Uh, Georgie uh, Zelma, uh, who else have we got? Dimitri Baltamance, he's, he's uh, a very good photographer. There's all sorts of work on there, and it's also not always what you would expect to see. So that's World War Two through Soviet Jewish eyes. The Soviet bit comes through, the Jewish, not so much. Um, but the, the photographs by these fantastically talented Soviet photographers, well worth a look. Right, the last two links are for videos on Vimeo. Um, and they're both to do with wet plate collodion photography. The first one is Ian Ruta. Ruta is a photographer that I've mentioned before on the blog. And if you're a reader of my blog, you'll probably have seen these links anyway. But I will mention them here just in case you haven't. Um, Ruta got fed up of film and digital photography and was looking for something slightly different and went down the wet plate collodion but what's different about him is is that he uses a van as the camera 
the darkroom and his mode of transport. And he shoots onto large pieces of uh, sheet metal. The images are absolutely remarkable. Um, and the photos um, speak for themselves, really. It's an absolutely brilliant way of taking portrait pictures. And that's exactly what uh, Ruta is doing in American Dream. What he's decided is that he's going to photograph people that he, that he meets, gets introduced to, and he gets introduced to all sorts of people from all sorts of aspects of life. A lot of them are sort of what you would call down on their look, I suppose you would say. Um, but it is quite a, a heartwarming little video to watch um, and certainly very informative about the, the process of how he works, taking these images, and he has got it to a fine art. It looks an incredibly difficult process an incredibly difficult photo photographic process um, to get right every time because it relies on coating the metal um, exactly the same each time and, and all sorts. The second film is American Tinnitype or Tintype uh -huh. which is all about photographer Harry Taylor who decided after the death of his mother mother that he, he wanted to to move into different photographic territory a lot of the a lot of the uh, reasons are similar to ian uh, rutter is it rutter rutter no, i'm terrible with saying names ian we'll say it's rutter um ian rutter's uh, work um in that he was just looking for something different from the perfection of digital i think he actually mentions in the film somewhere the, the second film, American Tintype, is a very, very short film. I think it's only about three minutes, but it's a brilliant expression of the passion of photography. It really is. Absolutely excellent. That's it for this podcast. There will be loads more bonus links in the bonus links section to make up for my non-appearance last month. And um, until next time, I hope you enjoy the links, and I will see you at the end of December. check out any of the links mentioned in this podcast, go to darker-skies.com forward slash podcasts.